Thank you, Jay. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to see you. I've met a few of you um, for the first time this morning. If I haven't gotten an opportunity to meet you yet, welcome to Legacy Church. It's good to have you here. Um, you caught us in the middle of a series going through the book of Acts. And so if you brought your Bible or a device that you like to use as we move through the Bible, we're going to be in Acts 17. And we're only going to go through maybe a dozen or so verses today. Um, I think it's also important while you're turning there just to recognize the big news that we got Friday in the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is going to impact not just our state directly, but it's going to impact our city directly. Knoxville is going to change, um, substantially change. Just the other day, it was either yesterday or Friday, um, it's mixed up in my head, there was a large gathering at Crutch Park here in Knoxville, hundreds of people showing up to protest the judicial ruling that was handed down. The mayor spoke. It was a pretty big deal. Um, Knoxville's going to change. It's going to be a little bit of a different city. And decades of prayer went into this when you think about it. Decades. My, my, the guy that led me to Jesus when I was just a college student, um, one of the things that gave him massive street cred in my eyes, which I, it didn't take much to impress me, you know, at the, at the ripe age, wise age of, of 20-whatever I was, um, was that he spent some time in jail because of praying and sitting in at a uh, Planned Parenthood there in Texas. They carted him off, put him in the pokey, and I thought that was really cool. But the thing is, is he's praying. He's praying for people as they're walking by. He's praying for abortion to be overturned federally. He's praying for these things. And, and I don't even think he even saw a day like this coming, to be honest with you. Decades of prayer. I know six justices handed down that decision, but God himself is the architect of all of it. It is the largest judicial ruling in my lifetime, very likely yours as well. And it makes me very hopeful for the future. But this, let me just say, is going to be a massive opportunity for the church for us, for the church as a whole to be thoughtful and to be creative and very sacrificial and very courageous. What I mean is there are going to be millions of moms and babies that are going to need help. I mean, when you think about it, adoption, things like adoption, things like fostering, just the care, just the general care of a mom, a disadvantaged family, those are going to be things, strategies, that are going to have to be embedded in the local church from here on out. It's gonna to have to be something that we really are thoughtful for. You know, one of the things I tell our staff all the time because we're in the business of fixing problems and bringing solutions, and one thing you'll learn quickly is that when you bring a solution, it usually carries its own set of problems. It might fix the problem that you really needed fixed, but down the road, you're gonna be bringing new solutions to fix the problems that came from the last solution, and this is going to be one of those things. How are we gonna take care of hundreds of moms and babies as a church in Knoxville? How are we gonna do that? Our leadership here at Legacy, we're gonna to have to discern what that means for us as a people, because we're not a big church. We're going to have to discern what that means. How will we fund and serve families that would carry a baby to term where originally they might have had an abortion? That's on us. Our time has arrived. We're picking up the baton and we're going to have to move forward. And what's interesting is that seconds, and I mean seconds, not minutes, seconds after the ruling had been official and it was popping up as a notification on my phone, likely yours, I received an email 
um, from one of the networks we're in as a church talking about a memo that the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, passed down to churches to be on the lookout for rioting mobs and vandalism of church property because of this ruling, right? So meeting in a high school has its perks, right? Nothing was broken or damaged or destroyed. I'm, I'm okay with that. But right now as we sit here, there are mobs that are destroying churches, destroying crisis pregnancy centers, are tweeting as fast as their little thumbs can carry them. And I just think it's important for us to be reminded that Jesus came for those mobs as we think about it. Because it's such a polarized nation. Now, now all of a sudden we have enemies, right? These mobs that are doing things that may be upsetting us. You need to know that Jesus is perfect for rabbles and hordes and villains that intend to do their worst and are panicking. We're actually going to see a little bit of that in today's passage. It's just important that we recognize and continually remind ourselves that those who are throwing bricks through windows and screaming at Christians, they're not your enemy, they're your mission. That's our mission field, right? Like I said, our time has, has, has arrived. I'm very excited about it. I, I, think, I think our church can be very powerful. I don't know what that could look like. I don't know what the shape it will take, but I'm excited. I'm excited to throw our hat in the ring and see what we can do as a people to come alongside what God is doing in our city. So let me just pray for us. I'd love that before I even jump into the passage, I just want to pray and just recognize how good God has been. Over a million babies a year are aborted. That's a lot of babies. Almost 64 million babies have been lost. Now we're still going to lose babies. There still are going to be abortions. There's not going to be that many anymore though, right? By God's grace, he's been good to us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the architect of big and brilliant things, even provocative things like this ruling that was handed down. And God, we're excited about the fact that there are going to be people that are going to cry out and worship you in, in years to come that would have been aborted. That there are going to be pastors, that there are going to be business owners, there's going to be young couples, there's going to be worshipers, there's going to be all kinds of people that would have been aborted. And I'm just excited, Lord, that you are breathing across our nation in such a way as this. And Father, just ask that before we even go into a passage like this and talk today, Lord, that you would empower us to think creatively. How can a church our size be sacrificial and creative and courageous and come alongside moms? What can that look like? How, how can a church like us, or a hundred churches like us, drain the system of kids that need a foster home? How can we step into the deep, the, the deep is calling out for? How can we do that? I pray that you would help us, that you would shape us as a people um, that can do something dangerous and risky, that you would shape us as a people that could be thoughtful well beyond our own borders. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you, and we're very excited about what you're doing, very excited about what you're crafting before our very eyes, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, providentially, the passage that we're covering today, which was always on the docket to be covered today, is the one that we named the series after, a church leaning forward and a world upside down. I think that's a title that sums the book of Acts up very well. Because as we've learned, the book of Acts is not a history of the church. It's a history of the church's mission and the expansion and the depth 
of this new kingdom that is coming, this counterculture. It's not just a culture surrounding the person of Jesus. It's a counterculture surrounding the person of Jesus. And this thing is still moving. This mission is still spreading house to house and nation to nation. We happen to be in a network called Acts 29. I challenge you, flip to the end of Acts. There's no Acts 29. It ends at Acts 28, right? And some of you are like, oh, that's why it's called Acts 29. That's why it's called Acts 29. The whole idea is, is the gospel is still moving and marching forward, and we're a part of it. We're a part of this. I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited about being in that network. But one truth that we have repeatedly seen in this book so far, we're barely 17 chapters in, is that Christianity is an incendiary thing. The gospel is flammable. It's combustible. It's very provocative. You could even say it's explosive. It's a truth that is going to cause a revolution wherever it goes. And that's what we've seen. We saw it free a jailer. Last time, governors, magicians, slave girls, entrepreneurs, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, doesn't matter. Wherever it shows up, it's turning things upside down. We see it today, changing nations, college campuses, households. It's explosive. It turns everything upside down, or I guess you could say it turns everything right side up. Either way, can't be discounted, right? Can't be camouflaged. I think another thing that we've learned walking through this book of Acts is that not everybody wants such a revolution like this, right? Not everybody's excited about it. We, we've seen it as far as persecution in the book of Acts. They're picking up stones. They're picking up rods we saw. Today we just, we dox people. We scream at people. Not everyone's excited about having their heart just totally turned upside down or their city turned upside down. Listen, not even all of the church wants gospel revolution, if we could just be frank. There is a percentage of the church that kind of wishes that the gospel was a little less incendiary. Right? I mean, this is, this is interesting. We are one week away from the 25th anniversary of the cinematic masterpiece, Men in Black. 25 years ago, you're welcome for that, by the way, if that was a part of your childhood. That was quite a ways back. I saw it in theaters, just to put some age to me. I was so excited, right, in my baggy jeans and my Tommy Hilfiger shirt with all my, my goon friends. We went and saw that. I was so excited to see Will Smith fight aliens. What is there not to love about that? And I remember the catchphrase coming out of his mouth that was never heard before in popular culture until this moment. He says, and I quote him, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. That's him. That's brilliant. Of course, it sounds real cringy now that I'm saying it out loud 25 years later, right? But back then I thought, that's the most awesome thing I've ever heard. And it started showing up on shirts and in rap songs, this catchphrase. And it actually earned a spot in the Urban Dictionary because that's where all important terms end up. And this is the definition. If an altercation is to be avoided, then one should cease acting in a provocative manner. <laughs> that's so nerdy. That's even more cringy, right? But it's just a remix of what our parents always taught us. Let sleeping dogs lie. Keep your head down, right? Look out for number one. Quit while you're ahead. Listen, before Jesus found me, this was my motto. This is how I lived. I wanted ultimately just to be loved and I want to be comfortable, which means I can't start nothing. I can't. 
I can't do it because if I leave things alone, then things will leave me alone. And if things will leave me alone, then I can keep the comfort that I've got. I can keep the friends that I have. I can be loved. After all, we live in a world that doesn't readily hand out things like love and comfort. So if you ever get your hands on it, you've got to hold on to it. It means you can't start anything. It means you have to stage your life in the background of what's going on. So before Jesus, I lived a very forgettable life, pretty much just looking out for number one, which was very boring. It was a boring, underwhelming life, to be honest with you. It was a very selfish one. And then Jesus found me. Jesus found me. And I understood, if I understood anything as a brand new believer, what Paul says, that the old is gone and the new has come. Right? Because the gospel is incendiary. It changes everything. It was a totally new creation. Not just inside of a new family or a new culture, but a new counter culture that ran against everything that I had ever known. So I totally changed. I abandoned the coward's life. I stopped objectifying women. I stopped just building a career for my own glory and for my own good. I quit living for myself. Changed the way I spent. Changed what I looked at. Changed what I listened to. Changed what I said. It changed my habits. It changed absolutely everything. Studs up. God changed my life. Don't start something became starting something wherever I could. That's what the gospel does. I'm not unique. I'm not special. That's just what the gospel does to a life. Flips everything upside down. Turns everything upside down. The gospel changes people to where they're not just better dead people, but they're newly alive people. So as we find Team Paul in our passage, as we've been mowing through the book of Acts, They've been accused of, quote, greatly disturbing society, which is accurate. That's on them. They have been. They've been flipping things over. They've been causing problems. And today, they're going to be accused of turning the world upside down. Again, I pray for this to happen in Knoxville. It's why we started this church, right? And not just here, but in Oak Ridge and Maryville and Seymour and Powell and everything in between that God would change our metro area. I'm excited about that. My hope is that legacy is the leading edge and we're leaning forward to do that. I think there's a lot of great work for us to do in this area. But listen, I want to be fair to you today. So I'm going to take a minute and just give you a few pointers on how not to turn this world upside down, okay? I want you to take it from an expert in keeping his head down. I want you to know that there is a way to live a forgettable life. It is within reach. It's easier than you think, and it can be yours, okay? This is what I mean. Let's look at Acts 17, and the Bible's going to lead us. We're going to see Christ very clearly in this passage. Acts 17, verse 1. This is, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessal- Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, Tip number one, point number one on how to not turn the world upside down. Stay quiet. Stay quiet. There's no need to be vocal and then insert yourself in other people's business. Just fade into the background noise, right? I mean, listen, there's tons of opinions out there. A bunch of philosophies. There's no need for you to add yours. 
right? No need to add to it. Simply press mute, stand back, and watch the world burn down because it's none of your business anyway, right? I mean, look at the four action verbs that we're seeing in here. Proclaim, explain, reason, and persuade, which is the heaviest of the four, right? Persuade. Don't do those things. If you don't want to turn the world upside down, avoid those things. Let people follow their own truth. That's the crime of Paul right here. He's not being very sensitive. I don't know if you saw that or not. He's not valuing their truth. But instead, he's persuading them to see that their truth is wrong and his truth is right. Doesn't seem very sensitive to me. Friend, listen, you might get away with announcing what you personally believe if somebody asks you, but in no way will you get away with trying to persuade. That's overstepping. That's overstepping. If you want to be loved and you want to be comfortable, silence will be your friend. Anonymity will be your friend. Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't persuade, right? Let's look at verse 5. Let's go on. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Tip number two on how to not turn the world upside down. When the going gets tough, you better just get going, right? Just get going. Quit while you're ahead. This is what turning the world upside down is sure to do. It is sure to build a mob. That's the cold hard math. That's what we've seen time and time again. Mobs will do something interesting. They'll do what the individuals will not do. We've talked about this up here before. It's called mob psychology or mob mentality, which means that an individual probably will not block a whole road off with their car, get out and light a Molotov cocktail and chunk it through the window of a nonprofit. They probably won't do it, but 100 individuals will. We know this. We do our most out-of-character acts when around a bunch of people. Ask any high school teacher this. They will tell you it's true, right? And God's people have a history of being mobbed. It was a mob that mocked Noah. It was a mob that tried to press in Lot's door and almost break his house down. It was a mob that would grumble against Moses and Aaron. It would be a mob that would push David off of his throne while he is exiled in lieu of his son. It would be a mob that would pick up stones and murder Stephen. It would be a mob that would throw rocks at Paul. It would be a mob that would yell, crucify him. All done by rabbles, hordes, mobs. And this is why mobs amplify our fallenness. It shows what we're really capable of if you pull those social restraints off. If you want to know how depraved we can really get, just look at what a mob will do. Because we're just 100 people away from doing it ourselves. And what social media has done, at least in this part of our century, is it accelerates mob mentality which is why you're seeing activity happening in some place like Arizona and getting posted on whatever social media venue just to be picked up somewhere else, USA, and then it goes off again. It used to be if you wanted to start a mob, you needed people around you. You needed some physical proximity. You don't need that anymore. 
And another thing we see about mobs is when they can't punish the culprit, they'll settle for a representation. They'll study just, just for an icon of what's going on. So they can't find Paul or Silas or Timothy, so what do they do? They find Jason, and they drag this guy out. And we see the same thing when Paul and Stephen are stoned because Jesus wasn't around to stone anymore. They had already killed him. This guy will do. And this is what we know to be true, right? Jesus promises you and me that this is exactly what will happen. It says in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. That is, unless you quit while you can get ahead. I mean, listen, take it from me. Press until you meet a little bit of resistance, then just stop pressing, right? Stop pressing. Give it the old college try. But if there's resistance, well, I mean, let's be honest. Probably wasn't meant to be, right? That's usually what we say whenever we say the door was shut. I think God has shut this door. Why do you say that? I don't know. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard. They got kind of angry. It's difficult. So I think that door is shut. Besides, look where it got Team Paul here. They're still walking off what had happened to them in Philippi. Friends, listen, they didn't get a sunburn in Philippi. They got beat with rods. They've got wounds that are still weeping. They've got scar tissue that hasn't even started really building yet. If rabbles and mobs, if they can't beat you, they will misrepresent you and they will crush your reputation. In my opinion, I think that's a little bit worse. Choosing or giving the choice between a beat-up reputation and a beat-up body, I think I'll take the whooping. Because those scars at least heal a little bit faster. So they took security from Jason, which is like a bond or a collateral, really, so that Paul and his friends would stop making trouble and leave. And so Paul leaves, leaves his friends there. But Paul does leave. And this is what it says in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Tip number three on how to not turn the world upside down. Listen, if it failed once, don't try it again. It could fail again, right? I mean, if it fails, why bother doing it. I mean, they were mugged in Philippi, mugged in Thessalonica for gospel persuasion, for gospel ministry, for declaring and demonstrating the gospel. They're running the same broken play in Berea. Isn't that interesting? Listen, this is their strategy if you reduce it down. It sums up a lot of what Paul does in the book of Acts, right? Step one, walk into town. Probably one you don't really visit all that often. Step two, ask where the nearest synagogue is. Step three, start flipping stuff over because you're preaching something that's provocative and it's tearing people up inside. Step four, locate the first aid kit and find an escape route over and over and over again from city to city to city. You would think that somebody would have chimed in. If I was part of this little little pirate crew, if I was in between Timothy and Silas and, and this kept happening, I would have said, hey, hey, hear me out. What if we did something different, Right? I mean, what if we did something just a little bit different? Maybe just spice it up a little bit because this thing that we're doing, yeah, we get a disciple or two or four, but we, can, we get a beating too. 
I mean, I've spent more time in prison since I joined this little team than ever before in my whole life. We're going to end up in prison in this place or run out or beat or all three. I'm surprised they even tried this. Doesn't the fact that they're taking hits means that this is not from the Lord? Isn't that what this means? I mean, after all, doesn't God just want good things for us? Where are the high fives in this? The hugs, where is it? Now, typically when this passage is taught, and I'm speaking verses 10 through 12, you usually are hearing, and this is the way I grew up hearing it taught, and it's not a bad way to teach it, by the way. It's a kind of a battle of sorts between the noble Bereans and the terrible Thessalonians, right? Because one was eager to examine the word and the other kind of ran them out of town. That's not entirely wrong. It's not entirely the main idea of this passage either, right? Because eventually, Thessalonica was very noble in how they handled the word. Right? This is how Paul greets the church in 1 Thessalonians 1. This is when he starts the letter. He says, we give thanks to God always for you. This, this is the crew that ran him out of town, right? We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jason was one of these guys, noble steadfast, loving. He labored. Eager examination is great. That's a totally different sermon. I'd be happy to preach someday. Eager eager examination is what we do when we examine the things that have been taught us to see if they are true. When we started this series out, we talked about, hey, not to totally deconstruct. You You might not need to believe everything that you were taught as a kid until you've brought it to the Bible and see if it's really true. See if it's really true. So that you could stand on your own two feet. Even the things I'm preaching today, feel free. I encourage you to go home with your Bible, open up your Bible, read your Bible to see if what I'm saying is true. I encourage you to do it. Eager examination is great. But these cities, Thessalonica and Berea, they're more similar than they are different. Because they didn't just get run out of Thessalonica. They're about to get run out of Berea as well. Okay? Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, that's 50 miles away. (laughs) They walked 50 miles to cause trouble again, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which you'll hear about next week, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. My last tip on how to not turn the world upside down, never leave a bestie behind. He's alone. Paul's alone now in Athens. Sounds dumb to me, right? Good friends just don't grow on trees. Have you noticed that when the combustible gospel truly gets a footing and you start seeing action happening, there seems to be this thing that we call at Legacy gospel goodbyes. Gospel goodbyes. Maybe not goodbye forever, but this proximity that we've really enjoyed, it can't go forward like it used to anymore. That's what we see. And it's tough. And this still happens. Some of you are in missional communities that have started one or two or even three other missional communities. And you've looked across the table or across the living room and you thought, man, I worked really hard on this relationship and I'm not going to get that time with them anymore. I mean, we'll fight to do it, right? I mean, we'll, we'll do the best we can to connect, but gone are the days of picking up where we left off. 
It's hard. Or when we planted a church, when we planted across town, we had 13 family units not here anymore. That was hard. Those were gospel goodbyes. Some of you have never seen any of those families again, right? They're across the county. They might as well be across the state. Gospel goodbyes. If you want to look out for number one, don't do anything that will change the structure of your friendships. Don't do it. So when your missional community grows to the point of having no more room for the city and it's obvious that it needs to plant, you're going to have to face this thing called a gospel goodbye. Let me tell you, that stinks. It stinks. So much better and easier just to keep the band together, the same people doing the same thing forever. It's easier. It's hard building friendships just to jeopardize them. Because then it takes a long time to build a new set of relationships that, again, is going to be jeopardized when you really get down to it. Or even your friends that are far from Jesus. Maybe they're not even in a church or this church. What will it look like to talk persuasively about Jesus? Will it fracture that friendship? Will they stop texting you back? Do you see what I'm talking about? Do you really want that? Consider your friends. Is this what you want? What if gospel mission threatens this? Are you okay with that? There's so many ways to live forgettably. I think we intuitively know that gospel ministry is a life of gaining and losing all at the same time. That's what we see. Gaining disciples, building a mob. Gaining, losing. I've used sarcasm for the most of this sermon, obviously, and besides that, it's a spiritual gift I've had. I've, I've been told by my friends, so I can move in and out of it okay. But I think we already intuitively knew what I was getting at. Big issues. Big league discomfort always brings big league gospel movement. It means both disciples will come and mobs will come all at the same time. And yet, and yet, and this is the important part of the entire passage, this is sacred space that we share with Jesus sacred space we share. It's what I call rare air that we find ourselves in. When we take hits, we lose friends, we lose money, we lose time, we actually gain so much more. We gain more God. You get more God. I'm not saying we get more grace or more mercy or more approval or more blessing. That's not what I'm saying. When I say when I say we get more God, is suffering will pull us tightly, even more tightly to the suffering servant of Jesus. All of your deep relationships have been built on the back of a shared life, shared high moments and shared low moments. And the more moments you share with somebody, the deeper the relationship gets. We know this, right? which is why a marriage of 50 years has much more texture and trust and complex beauty than one of five years. It's just more shared experiences, right? When, su when suffering is shared, a depth is found that you cannot build otherwise. You can't build it any other way. It's the only way to get there. And it's in this sacred space that satisfaction is finally found. And by the way, it's why so many Christians are bored. Bored. Bored Christians are ultimately unsatisfied Christians. Ultimately. If you're bored, you're misunderstanding the person and the work of Jesus. I'm not saying you won't find yourself in a stale season of life. That's going to visit all of us, right? To find ourselves in seasons of life that are a little bit more stale, but to be bored of the person of Jesus, to be bored of what God is doing in our midst, God is doing around us, 
Friend, if you're underwhelmed by a lack of adventure in your gospel life, it's got everything to do with your source of satisfaction. Because just remember, in the last passage we were in, we find Paul singing in prison. His feet are in torture devices. He's in chains, and he can't sleep. He's beat up, and he is sweetly satisfied. He got more God. He's experiencing more God. I will tell you, my closest moments with Jesus have been embedded in my darkest moments on this planet, by far. Out of the ashes of pain and frustration and loneliness comes this depth of relationship I wouldn't trade anything for. That's the only way I can get that close to Jesus. It's the only way you can get that close to Jesus is to share moments and to know that when you are suffering, he knows exactly what that feels like because he's sharing it with you. He's gone before us. This Jesus who left his friends, this Jesus who felt the wrath of a mob, this Jesus who came to save those who would never thank him, this Jesus knew what it was like to face death. He knew what it was like to be misrepresented. He turns hearts upside down, though. And when Jesus turns a heart upside down, everything is reordered. You know, the, the explosive gospel, when it shows up to kind of ruin whatever your status quo is, it doesn't remove all of your affections. It just reorders them. It was like that for me, too. I loved a bunch of things before Jesus found and changed my life. I loved a lot of those same things right afterward. It's just I love them in context now. They're ordered. They're ordered. Properly ordered. And when Jesus is our primary affection, ruling over all other affections in our world, then things change. I mean, listen, close friends are awesome. A great spouse is fantastic. The career of your dreams, that's a blessing. Finances, time, health, all fantastic. All good things, all of them very bad saviors. Because they can't rescue us. They can't complete us. They can't save us or sustain us. But when Jesus is our deepest affection, we don't need those things to deliver us anymore. And so we can stop breaking them, and now we're free to enjoy them. You see what I'm saying? We're free. We're free. We're free to persuade mobs towards the gospel because they can't take anything away from us or give us anything because we're free. We're free to reason and explain and prove. We are free to persuade, free to be rejected and beaten, free to be run out of town, free to lose dear friends, free to sacrifice our time and our treasure, even our life. We're free to lose everything because there's nothing to lose. We have God in increasing measure, day by day, day by day especially when mobs pick up rocks and rods, especially when we find ourselves alone. Friends, this is how a city is turned upside down. It is anything but easy, and it is anything but a forgettable life. It is a life of loss, and it is a life of gain, all at the same time. So what are you most afraid to lose if you fully invest yourself in gospel ministry? And I'm being very vague and very broad right now on purpose because there's 93 million different ways that gospel ministry might take shape in our lives right now. It could be discipling a neighbor towards Christ. It could be working with our boss. It could be anything. It could be how you raise your kids, anything, right? What are you most afraid to lose if you fully invest 
in gospel ministry? Where are you most certain that blowback will make your life absolutely unbearable? And whatever that thing is, it has become a semi-Jesus to you. And it cannot save you, and it cannot complete you. That is for sure. I want you to remember that living a boring and forgettable life is within reach. You can have it. You can stay out of the mob's way. You can keep all the time and the money, and you can keep all of your friends. You, however, will never be satisfied. You will always be bored. You will always be asleep at the wheel. More God is better than being adored by the rabbles and the mobs and the hordes. More God is better than all the comfort and the love that this world can deliver to us. And listen, if you're here or if you're watching online right now and you're not even sure that you love Jesus, and listen, I know what that's like. I lived a couple years of my life where I wasn't even sure if I was saved or not. I mean, I had affections for God, but I'm not sure how much affection I needed to have to be saved. I didn't know. I mean, I I like the idea of Jesus. I feel like I would have done great things for Jesus, but then I couldn't shake this life that I had at the same time. I just was in this weird place of not really knowing. And that might be some of you, or, or maybe you just know definitively, I am far from God. And you're just searching. You're not sure about Christianity. Can you at least see that Jesus satisfies and completes us? If you can, it is by God's spirit that you can even see that. That means he's already at work in your life, which is pretty cool. I didn't persuade you at all. He's doing it, if that's you. And if that's you, you're probably already seeing that everything you've used in the past to complete you, to save you, to sustain you, you have broken with your own two hands and have never enjoyed. You've put demands on something to make you significant in this world, and it couldn't bear the weight. Only Christ can bear that weight. You will break your marriage if you demand that it meets all of your needs. You will break your kid. You will break your job. You will break your health. You will break everything. This is also why you might find yourself super bored, hoping for something new to come along and satisfy you, right? New president, new car, new job, new body, new something. Who knows, right? This quest for newness that just won't be satiated. By the way, that's actually God-born. You're actually created to yearn for new. You're created to yearn for Jesus. It's why you came in here or why you clicked on this link feeling so incomplete, so bored, and so lonely. I'm just going to rip Paul's words off here. He says, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Oh, he is, and he saves, and he completes and he sustains. And without him, we find nothing but wrath and pain and lonely boredom. This is a good God we could submit our lives to. This is a good God that we could call upon in times of need. And I would just submit that would be you today. And if you need somebody to talk to, you could come up and talk to me. I would love to just talk to you. You don't even have to know what questions to ask or what to say. You could just say, hey, I think that God is doing something in my life and I don't even really know what. I don't really know if I'm saved or not. It could be something just as simple as that. Let us help you. Let us walk with you through that. You don't have, you don't have to go through very many nights like that. You could, you could end that dark night of the soul. We could help you with that today. For the rest of us as a church, as a people of God, there's room to repent when we watch these actions of these church planters. 
We could turn away. We could repent from staying out of the fray and just looking out for number one. Don't start nothing, won't be nothing. We could turn from avoiding the suffering of gospel ministry. Avoiding the suffering of gospel ministry equals avoiding a depth of relationship to Jesus. We could turn from a life of boredom, right? Examine your life for a moment. If you're bored as a Christian, again, I don't mean having a stale season. We all have that. We call it a valley, right? We all have that. But if you're just bored, not of just a sermon. Listen, some preachers are good, some preachers aren't. I'm not gonna, some, some classes are great, some aren't. Some books are great, some aren't. But if you're just bored of the idea of God, friend, let's, let me just tell you, if you're a Christian, that's, that's an area of repentance. That's just not something you get through. That's something you turn from. There's something in your life that has gone septic. We turn from that. You're not a victim as much as you are a person that is in need of God's grace to come to you in that moment. We have room to repent. We have room to repent. We also have room to celebrate today because one day you and I, we're gonna be in a different rabble, a different mob, right? No sticks and stones or weird social media accounts, but we're gonna have praises and satisfied hearts. One day, it's not just gonna be a heart turned upside down or a city or a metro area or a state or a nation. This entire cracked cosmos down to the last electron will be turned upside down and embody everything it was meant to be. And when that happens, you and I will look back on this time and realize we had nothing to lose. We had nothing to lose. Until then, let's turn Knoxville upside down with hearts turned upside down next to each other. We've got a lot of work to do. Amen? Got a lot of work to do.